You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today we'll be reading from Titus 3, 8-11. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we, um, we are grateful. We're gr- grateful because you are our God. We're grateful because you have made us your people. We're grateful that you do not remain silent, but you speak to us. You speak to us in ways that we can comprehend, that we can understand. And so, Father, as as I preach this morning, I ask that you would make my words clear. That I would not muddy the waters of your clear and inerrant word. Father, that you would unstop the ears of the deaf and you would open up the eyes of the blind and he would chisel away at stony hearts, remove stony hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh that desire to be molded and formed into the image of your likeness in the person and work of Jesus. So spirit of the living God, fall fresh on this gathering, fall fresh on those who are gathering apart from us right now online. We want to be transformed. We do not want to leave here the same. I do not want to leave here the same man that I came in here today. Work in us and through us this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Y'all can be seated. Can everyone out he- there hear me okay? We good? All the way in the back? Great. Well, as we near the end of Paul's letter to Titus, Paul is telling Titus what to focus on and what to avoid, what's worthy to teach and what is worthless to get in dumb arguments about. Now, I wonder if you've been there before where you're having your normal everyday conversation and then in a flash, it turns into this dispute over a foolish discussion that leads to divisions between someone you love or someone that you call your friend. Any ever been there before? Yeah, I think most of us, if we're honest, have been on the receiving end of those conversations, but sometimes we've been on the giving end of those discussions that lead to division. And so what do we do? 
What do we do when those conversations come up? How are we to think through this? And it's not so much with folks outside of the church that don't believe in Christ. How do we have these difficult discussions with those who we call brothers and sisters, family in Christ? Well, Paul will give us and Titus three marching orders. And if you're following along in your notes, these are what they are. First, he says to insist. First, he says, insist on what is formative and useful. Insist on what is formative and useful. Second, he says, avoid what is foolish and worthless. And third, he says, warn with firmness and grace. Insist on what is formative and useful. Avoid what is foolish and worthless. And three, warn with firmness and grace. And if you are going to leave here with anything today, I think Paul, I'm convinced that Paul wants us to leave here with this today. He wants us to keep the plain things main and the gray things on the fray. He wants us to keep the plain things of Scripture, God's gospel of grace, the main thing, and all that is gray on the fray. And so if you're with me this morning, I want you to keep your Bibles open to Paul's letter to Titus. We're in that final chapter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, and that's where we'll begin. First point, insist on what is formative and useful. Start with me in verse 8, if you've got your Bibles still open. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. When Paul writes that the saying is trustworthy, he is referring back to what Pastor Andrew so vividly preached on last week, and that is God's five fold strategy and act of salvation that we saw in verses three through seven, right? So if you look just a little bit higher in your Bibles, you'll see in verse three through seven, this fivefold act comes in first, the need. What is the need that we need saved from sin, shame, guilt, and death? Second, the source. What is the source of salvation? It's God's gracious, merciful, and loving kindness. The third act is the reason why he saved us. Not by your works, but by the work of Christ and his grace and his mercy. The means. How did he go about doing this? It was by the renewing and regenerating power of the Spirit. And fifth, what is the goal? What is the goal of salvation? It's our hope of eternal life as heirs of grace. Do you see that this is a Trinitarian work of salvation? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit does the whole work of salvation. Do you know what part we played? The only part we played in salvation is providing the sin that necessitated our salvation. That's the only work you played, I played. So what's less for us to do? Well, what else do you do with the gift? You receive it. You receive this grace, and this gift of grace both transforms us on the spot and continues to transform us. This is the main thing. It's plain. Keep it the main thing. He says, insist on these things. And then did you notice in verse 8? 
Did you see the so that? Why does Paul want us to insist on these things? Well, look with me. So that those who believe, not work. Those who trust, not work. Those who trust in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Do you see? Belief in God leads to a behavior that reflects God. Doctrines of grace leads to devotion of good works that is fueled by grace. Paul is not saying you need to have good works in order for God to be happy with you. No, he's saying the opposite. He's saying your good works are evidence. They're proof that you have been transformed by this grace. You don't work for grace. You work from grace. What Paul is talking about is the fruit of the Christian life. Now, I have a, a fruit tree in my backyard. It's an apple tree. Around this time of year, what starts to happen is I, I begin to see buds on the tree that will later turn into these beautiful flowers and then later into some delicious fruit. Now, what do those buds and those flowers let me know is happening within the tree? It lets me know that there is life in the tree. The fruit does not provide life to the tree. It proves that there is life in the tree. In the same way in the Christian life, your works do not provide you life with God. It proves that you have life with God. Your good works are, are proof that God's generous grace has transformed you and is now forming you into the image of his son. And that life that is within you is the power and the presence of God, the Holy Spirit himself. You see, grace is a person. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And now that person in the Holy Spirit now lives inside of those who have repented and trusted in Christ. And that same God who has redeemed you by his grace now renews you by his grace. And Paul says in verse 8, he says they are careful to devote themselves to good works. Meaning you don't accidentally fall into devotion. You don't accidentally fall into good works. But you have grace-fueled and formed intentions. This is what happens when you are in love with somebody. Nobody falls in love. Nobody falls in love. You know what you do? You carefully and you meticulously learn more about the person you love so that you can love them more. You're careful to devote yourself to good works. And what does this lead to? Your works show off how much you love the person that has already loved you first. You see, when you deeply learn more about this gracious God, you want to devote yourself to more good works. It's not because you have to. It's because you want to. You want to show off to the world how much you have been loved by this God, not by your works, but by his work on the cross. And Paul says this is profitable. It's profitable and it's excellent for people. Now that's a peculiar word, don't you think? For people. 
He didn't say profitable for the body of Christ. Could have. He didn't say he was going to have returns on grace for the brotherhood and the sisterhood. He could have. But he didn't. He says people. Which meant all of their neighbors in Crete who did not know Jesus. Your good works are profitable for your neighbors. Don't you see? Your good works do not earn God's grace. Your good works show off God's grace to a watching world who needs to know about this grace. Why? So that God can make your good works profitable. He's getting a return on his grace. More people knowing about this salvation that is not by works, but by his free gift of grace alone at the cost of Jesus' life. He wants kingdom profit. Neighbors and nations adopted into his kingdom. Jesus tells us all about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We've said this phrase probably about a half a dozen times in this sermon series. But it's worth saying again. God doesn't need your good works. But your neighbor does. God loves using your good works to show off his good grace. And your good works will bring about a profit for the kingdom. More people coming from death to life. This is the main thing. It's plain. Paul says to insist on this main thing. It's formative. It's useful. But second point, he says, avoid what is foolish and worthless. He just said what is profitable and good. Good works leads to a good witness. But here he says, there's some things that are unprofitable and worth nothing. Now pay close attention. In verse 10, he doesn't say avoid foolish people. No, he says avoid the foolish things that come out of their mouth. And we don't get specifics here from Paul. He's speaking in generalities. We don't know the specifics of genealogies or the dissensions. Right? The genealogy, genealogies could be something like they're debating over Christ's genealogy. Or some Jews love debating over their pedigree, their lineage. They love bragging about whether they came from Moses or whether they came from Abraham. What they love doing is putting their ethnicity up on a pedestal above other ethnicities. That, that could have been what it was. That we Jewish Christians are better than you Gentile Christians. And this would obviously lead to dissensions. And there's people who are arguing about the law. We don't know the specifics as well. But what we remember from chapter 1 is there's folks of the circumcision party. And what that meant was they were arguing that it was Jesus plus the work of circumcision gets you salvation. Where the gospel of God's grace is Jesus plus nothing gets you everything. Now, why do we suppose? Why do we suppose that Paul isn't getting into the specifics, into the weeds of these dissensions? I'll tell you why. 
He's keeping the plain things, the main things. And he's keeping what is gray on the fray. He's not entering into these foolish controversies. They're not even worth the ink spilt on the scroll. And even when he talks about controversies, he qualifies them with the word foolish. Meaning that there are some controversies that are worth being controversial over. It's good to have some controversy, namely over what is plain that we must keep main, what is trustworthy, what is priority, the good news about Jesus. It's good to have a controversy over that. It's good to have a controversy over one God who is triune. It's good to have controversy over man and woman uniquely created in the image of God for good works. It's good to identify sin as sin. It's good to have a controversy that it's by grace alone, not by works we are saved. Why is it good? Because Paul just spent five verses talking about those things. He went into great detail. And even when we look at Jesus' life, he himself was a controversial figure, right? So what is Paul talking about with foolishness, foolish controversies? I think based on the context here, it's when these corrupt teachers from chapter 1 are making non-primary matters primary. It's when you make non-primary matters primary. Foolish controversies, controversies focus on the things that do not benefit the watching world. It focuses on things that, that do not bring people from life to death because it doesn't lead towards kingdom profit, brand new believers in Christ. Why are these unprofitable and worthless, he says? Because it's distracting from the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Alistair Begg, who is a pastor up in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes, there's good things that come from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, he says this. Keep the plain things main and the main things plain. This is the job of the pastor. This is the job of the church member. It's to focus on the gospel of grace. Just as Titus had divisions and quarrels within the church, we still have dissensions and divisions and quarrels in the church. Do we not? And we're not talking about the weird quarrels like did or did we not land on the moon? We're not talking about the ones where, were there really dinosaurs? Or did somebody just place those bones there? No, what he's talking about here is topics that will divide the church. Let me just ask you, what was the last argument you got into with other believers? Should you think about it for a second? Let me just, did it profit the non-believers who were listening in? Did it make them think, oh, that's a community of grace that I want to be a part of? When did it profit church unity? When did it profit the spiritual growth of the church for you 
to get in arguments about your list of shoulds and oughts that are found nowhere in Scripture? When did it profit your neighbors when they heard you arguing over things that has nothing to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus? When did it transfer someone from death to life in Christ basing, based on convincing them of your political views? When? When was it profitable? Let me speak as plainly as Paul. It's never profitable. It's worthless. And you might be saying, how do I avoid these types of conversations? It's a great question. Go back to point one. Insist on the gospel. Insist on what is formative. Insist on what is useful. It doesn't mean that we never talk about secondary or tertiary things. But it does mean we never elevate them to the point of primary unity in the church. Keep the plain thing the main thing and what is gray on the fray. And for those who keep insisting on being divisive, having these secondary and non-primary issues becoming the primary thing that they need to unify around, Paul has a strong word for, for Titus. Point three, warn them with firmness and grace. Look with me in verse 11. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now we can presume that the people who are stirring up this division are the same corrupt teachers who are tempting Titus to get into these foolish controversies. And since it's not profitable but worthless, and since it just builds walls within the church, instead of breaking down barriers for the unity of the gospel, Paul tells him to warn him, not just once, but warn them twice. If they don't listen, make a clean break from them. Now, now where is the Apostle Paul getting this from? These are the very words of Jesus. These are the commands of Jesus out of Matthew chapter 18. If you turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18, in verses 15 through 17, Jesus says this to ordinary everyday disciples. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. See, Jesus' and Paul's invitation is vastly different than today's cancel culture. In cancel culture, you don't even get a warning. But when you're in a culture of grace, you get a first warning. Second, and even in Jesus' outline, a third chance. Listen to me. Warnings are grace. You don't deserve to be warned. We're not owed a warning. And yet God is lavish with his grace, even in these warnings. 
And if these brothers or sisters don't listen, does he say condemn them? No. He says just separate from them because their own lifestyle is self-condemning. What does this mean, self-condemning? It's, it's evidence that there's no life of grace within that person, that all you see is bad fruit coming from the tree because all there is is the disease of sin within that tree. This is what's known as formal church discipline. It's not a popular thing in churches. But church discipline gives warnings after warnings because the church doesn't want someone to leave. They want them to be reconciled back to God and back to one another. See, all church discipline is is simply holding up a mirror to the person to show them what they are participating in. It's not the church condemning people. It's their own self-condemnation because of their sinful lifestyle and actions. But the invitation, the invitation is always come home. The invitation is there's always grace for those who want to turn back home to Christ. And Paul and Jesus desires even their staunchest opponents of grace to come experience grace. Even those who oppose it, they want them to experience it. Titus, insist on this, he says. Insist on these things. The warnings must be an invitation back to the main thing, which is the plain thing. God's gospel of grace. Let me ask you, is this our aim, church? Is this our goal? Or do you warn others just to condemn them? Do you warn only to shame them, to show them how right you are? Or do you warn them to call them home to Jesus? Or maybe you don't see this as your job. Maybe you grew up in the church and you say, that's not my job, that's the pastor's job. Well, maybe if you just read Paul's letter to Titus. But you can't ignore Jesus' marching orders to all believers. This is the job of everybody who calls themselves a believer, a disciple of Jesus, to give out these warnings. Why? So that your brothers and sisters can come home. See, why don't we warn others of their folly and their divisiveness? I'll tell you why. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. You know what's easy? Avoiding them. You know what's easy? Ignoring them, unfollowing them, canceling them. But that's not loving, it's self seeking, it's self centered. You're seeking after comfort. You're considering your interest more important than their interests. That is the way of the world, not the sacrificial love and way of the cross of Christ. We are called to warn those who are being divisive. Now I wonder, how many of you have ever been to um, a state or a, a national park before? I know a lot of people have gotten outside during this pandemic. Now, when we go through these state or national parks, uh, 
as we're enjoying God's beautiful creation and his bounty, what else do we see in these, these parks? Warning signs, right? Warning, grizzly bears. Warning, falling rock. Warning, pink rattlesnakes or stay hydrated like I saw when I was hiking through the Grand Canyon. Now, why are those warning signs there? Those warning signs are there because someone experienced the horrors of not being warned of those things. Somebody died or got seriously injured because nobody warned them of the danger. Why do we keep insisting on the cross of Christ and his grace? It's because the cross itself is a warning. The cross itself is a gracious warning sign that what Christ has went through, hell itself, separation from God on that cross is a warning of where others will end up if they keep making secondary and tertiary things primary things because they're not focused on the gospel of grace. They're ashamed of it. They're more proud to go tell of who they'd vote for, where they've come from, how they practice certain things, than reminding people of what actually saves. Jesus. This is our call to warn others. And will others hate you? Maybe. Will people leave you and forsake you? Quite possibly. Will they shame you and persecute you for warning them about the dangers of falling away from Christ? Most likely. So why do we warn? It's because we've experienced the transformative power of God's grace. We remember who we once wore. It transforms deceivers and dividers into believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen? See, why do you suppose Paul didn't say get rid of them or just kick them out? He could have. I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul used to do as a, as a Pharisee. He would walk around murdering Christians who do, did not agree with his religion. Paul was used to it. That's easy work. But this type of work requires patience, faithfulness, steadfastness, love, and peace. This type of warning requires sacrifice and service towards others' needs, not worrying about your own needs. Why would Paul want this? I'll tell you why. Because Paul knows this is the character of his God. And from the creation all the way to the cross, God has always given out gracious warnings. And those warnings were something that we don't deserve to have, but he graciously gives us. But Paul also knows that he was once just like these corrupt teachers. He knows that he was once just like these people who were dividing the church. And Paul knows that if Christ could save a moralistic, prideful, self-righteous sinner like him, the chief of all sinners, then Jesus can save anyone, even the corrupt 
teachers and the corrupt dividers that are within the church at Crete because Paul knows the depths of his sin went far deeper than the depths of their sin. And yet God's grace went even deeper. Paul knew that God had every right to give up on him, but God kept pursuing Paul and saved him by his grace. And so out of that love and that pursuit, Paul now encourages Titus to go pursue the same way that Christ has pursued you and not given up on you. I mean, do you remember what Paul just reminded Titus of in verses 3 through 7? He says, for we, he doesn't say for you, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, we were once disobedient, we were once led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our time with malice, envy. We were hating other people and hated by other people. But the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. His grace appeared in a person and his name is Jesus. And he saved us not because of my works, but because of his work on the cross and his abundant mercy. Don't you see? Christ got what we deserved so that we would not get what we deserve. And instead we get grace. We get what we don't deserve. Love and acceptance and welcome back into the community time and time again when we sin and we sin when we sin. Grace keeps running deeper, doesn't it? And so we invite people to come and experience that. This saying is trustworthy, Paul says. I want you to insist on these things because this is plain and this main thing will actually change those deceivers. It will change those deceivers into believers who will now devote themselves not to divisive work, but to good work that is fueled and formed by my grace. Do you see what Paul's saying? If you want those folks who seem like enemies to start acting like family, Remember that you were once an enemy. Preach to yourself first, then preach to them. And so as we close today, I want to give you two words. First word is to receive. It's to receive. Before we're able to warn others, we must be able to receive warnings as well. Before we're able to say, let me take that piece of sawdust out of your eye, We need to get the log out of our own eye so we can see clearly to help them get the speck out of their own eye. Do we have a posture that is still able to receive warnings of grace? The second word is to remind. Keep reminding yourself what the plain things are so we can make them the main things. And keep reminding others around you, church. This is not the job of the paid professionals up here. This is the job of the church to remind one another it's by grace we've been saved, not by works. And this is what unites us. Let us keep the plain thing the main thing and keep what is gray on the fray. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, We praise you that you have not given up on us. And Father, there's so many times 